Well, open with me in your copy of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, which should be on page 975 of the Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you're choosing to use that copy of God's word. Well, last weekend we celebrated Easter, Easter, the universe altering death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to consider how this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ ought to completely transform our lives, that that we would live the resurrection life right here and right now. The gospel is meant to change us, but change is hard, change is difficult, Change is not easy. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us of this when he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We don't naturally turn from evil and do good. Meaningful change and transformation is only possible through a divine act of God within our hearts. And this divine act is described by the Lord himself in Ezekiel's prophecy. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. This, friends, is the new covenant. The resurrection life. Which is brought about by the Lord giving his people a new heart. A new spirit. His spirit in us. Which makes obedience to the commands of God possible. We desperately need, we desperately need soul transformation to take place in us before we can live out this resurrection life. And it's living out the resurrection life that is the purpose of our text today in Galatians 5. So follow along in your Bible or follow along on the screen behind me as I read from Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word for us today. And as we consider these words from our text, we can't escape the continual references to the Spirit's work in the believer's life. We read, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. The resurrection life is a life that's fueled and energized by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian, which alone gives disciples of Jesus the ability to overcome sin and bring him glory. My chief aim today is to answer a twofold question. Number one, what does it mean to live by the Spirit? And number two, what does life in the Spirit look like? Or more simply, how does the resurrection life become your life? How does the resurrection life become my life? Now, our text today places us near the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, a letter written to a group of churches that was founded on his first missionary journey. And, important to note in our context, a church primarily composed of Gentile believers. Now, Paul's motivation for writing this letter is to make a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was under attack in these Galatian churches. For Jewish agitators had come to this region and were teaching these Gentile believers that they must be circumcised and keep certain aspects of the Mosaic law in order to be fully saved. These agitators, who we often call the Judaizers, acknowledged that the work of Christ was a portion of what was necessary to become part of God's family, and yet they were pressing the law on believers in Galatia as being necessary for full inclusion into the people of God. Well, our apostle, Paul, does not mince words, but he's been on the attack against these gospel perversions throughout his letter, protecting the purity of the gospel. And here is just a sampling of his argument. We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, this issue of justification by faith, that is to be declared or counted as righteous before a holy God on the basis of faith in Christ alone, This is the key theme of Galatians. That's my prayer 
And it's our prayer as a church that as God's spirit works in you, that you've come to trust and cherish this glorious truth. That, that your acceptance by a holy God is completely based upon his initiative to forgive your sin and to declare you as righteous. Not because of your good works, but purely, purely on the basis of Christ's work on your behalf. And we must remind ourselves that that justification is both forgiveness and righteousness. Do we need our sins to be forgiven? Absolutely, absolutely. But we need more than a clean slate to be accepted by our holy God. We need perfect righteousness. And this perfect righteousness never has been and never will be our own doing. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts, even as it was for Abraham, who Paul cites as having believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So at the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ. He was punished accordingly, received the wrath of God that his righteousness might be credited to the accounts of all who believe by faith. Uh, This is the gospel that Paul puts forth in Galatians. And I pray the Spirit has opened up your eyes to see that it's the power of God for your salvation. It's the power of God for my salvation. So, uh, the resurrection life is inaugurated by the Holy Spirit coming to reside in the life of his chosen children, prompting a response of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But having lingered on this truth of justification by faith, apart from works of the law, what then does the justified Christian life look like in the here and now? As scripture tells us, as we read earlier from Romans, that those who've placed their faith in Christ have been buried with Christ in his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. Which is to say, the grace that forgives us is a grace that transforms us. So what does the resurrection life look like? Well, one very erroneous teaching of a false gospel is that while justification or the starting point of our salvation is by faith, sanctification, that is growth in Christ-likeness, is the result of human effort. This is part of what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatian believers. Yes, Christ is your way in. He's your entry point. But once you're in, you have to keep yourself in by observing the law. And this heresy is alive and well in certain churches today where Christians are burdened with doubt doubt over God's love for them based upon their inability to perfectly keep his commandments. But, But listen to what Paul says Back in Galatians 3, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
So Paul's appeal to us and to the Galatians is simple. Just as our salvation began by faith and the work of the Spirit in bringing our dead hearts to life, so our growth in Christ-likeness is a result of the same faith and as a result of the same working of the Spirit. Uh, the resurrection life in the here and now is lived through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul tells us later in our passage this morning that the key to overcoming sin is, is not primarily a matter of trying harder, but walking in the Spirit. And the famous fruit of a Christian life that we just read about a few moments ago is not referred to as the fruit of diligent effort or the fruit of hard work. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, does hard work have a place in the Christian life? Yes. And yet, at the root of any human effort must be complete and total reliance upon the finished work of Christ, whose spirit is living in and through the believer. Paul makes this point back in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Abe used to memorize whole passages of scripture. I'm good for one verse. So, so it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Christ living a righteous life for us. Christ crucified for us. Christ resurrected for us. And Christ living in us, that makes sanctification possible. Again, the grace of Christ in our lives is a grace that both forgives and a grace that transforms. This then brings us to our passage, uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 26, where Paul lays out the contrast between the life that is being led by the Spirit and the life that is being led by the flesh. In these verses, we're going to see what the resurrection life looks like in three movements. Uh, number one, the battle of the resurrection life. Number two, the proof of the resurrection life. And number three, the victory of the resurrection life. Let's start with the battle of the resurrection life. In our first three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18, we see a very real battle that's being portrayed for us between the life being lived in the spirit and the life being lived in the flesh. This battle between the spirit and the flesh in a believer. They're opposed to each other. They're not friends. Each is desiring to have its way in our lives. Well, what is the flesh? The flesh refers to our, our unredeemed humanness the part of a believer that awaits future redemption at the time of glorification when Christ returns. Yes, if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We've been given new hearts. 
His spirit is alive in us, making it possible for us to keep his commandments. And yet, we still exist within the confines of humanity. We're not perfected yet. We're not glorified yet. And our flesh still expresses passion and desire for sin. Uh, We've been raised with Christ to new life in Christ, and yet we're still dragging around the corpse of the flesh, as it were. There's a very real war waging in our lives between the newness of the Spirit, the newness of the Spirit and the oldness of the flesh. And I don't have to tell you this, right? I don't have to tell you this. You experience this battle in your life each and every day. Uh, the, the image often portrayed in movies of you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, uh, it's really not that far off the mark. Okay? As the flesh seeks to pull us in one direction, while the spirit prompts us in a different direction. And, and we must note that the spirit and the flesh are mutually exclusive. They don't coexist in harmony together. Either the spirit is winning and the flesh is losing, or the flesh is winning and the spirit is losing. There are no alternatives. There's no middle ground. There's no path of compromise. It's a battle in which one side always is going to be having the upper hand. And my question for you this morning is, Which has the upper hand in your life? But Paul here in our text makes an amazing promise. He says that if we walk by the Spirit, the guaranteed result will be that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I love that his solution is not just what not to do. That is, oh, just stop gratifying the desires of the flesh. No, he tells us what to do in place of the flesh. That is, walk by the Spirit. So what then does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It it means to live under the Spirit's power, live under the Spirit's influence, to be motivated and energized by the life of Christ and the word of Christ in us. It's to be connected to Christ, to be close to Christ, to abide in relationship with Christ. In John 15, Jesus makes this path very clear. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I think the connection here in John 15 is critical to understanding the battle of the Spirit-led resurrection life that we see in Galatians 5. Both passages, John 15 and Galatians 5, speak about fruit or outward demonstrations of the redeemed life. In Galatians 5, Paul connects this godly fruit to the Spirit. That is, 
As we walk by the Spirit, we will bear fruit for God's glory. Then in John 15, Jesus also speaks of the Christian life bearing fruit that is pleasing to God. But Jesus cites the source of a Christian's fruit as a result of of a life that abides in him. Now, uh, I was a middle school math teacher for most of my adult life. Uh, Many of you probably cringe at both of those realities, spending time with middle schoolers and spending time doing math. Uh, I was brave. Uh, I took them on together in one shot at one time, and I enjoyed them both. Well, one of the, the common principles of mathematical equality is this, that, 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 that if two separate values are both equal to a common value, then those separate values are equal to one another. So if I were to say that, that Peyton weighs the same as Anthony, And if Will weighs the same as Anthony, then we could say that Peyton and Will share the same weight on a scale, which is the same thing as saying that if A equals B and C equals B, then A and C are equal to one another. Hope I didn't lose you. Uh, Here's the point. If Paul says that the good fruit of a Christian life comes from walking in step with the Spirit, and Jesus said that the good fruit of a Christian life comes from abiding in him, then walking by the Spirit is one and the same as abiding in Christ. They both produce fruit for God's glory And living the resurrection life could be described as either walking by the Spirit or abiding in Christ. Now, we think about abiding in Christ, and I could come up with my own clever illustrations about what this means, but Jesus has already done it for us in John 15. He's given us the imagery of the vine, the branches, and the fruit, uh, which makes me think about yard work, right? Yard work. So I have about 20 bushes that encircle my house, and about twice a year, once the branches on these bushes have like really, really gone out of control, uh, I'll spend hours and hours trimming the bushes, uh, cutting back the branches. It takes multiple days. Uh, You can ask my wife. I'm in the process of it right now. It's been two weekends in, and hopefully this weekend I'll, I'll finish it up. Well, well, Jesus' illustration is, is clear and powerful in the midst of my yard work, right? The branches that stay connected to the main stem of the bush, regardless of how much I prune them, regardless of how much I cut them back, they keep sprouting leaves and producing flowers. Sometimes uh, I get carried away and my pruning turns into like hacking and I really cut the bush down. I wonder, is this bush ever going to show signs of life again? And then generally, within a few days or so, I see signs of life as buds and stems begin to sprout almost immediately from unexpected places. Why? 
Well, because these branches are still connected to the life of the bush, the the vine, as it were. On the flip side, it's astonishing to me to watch how quickly a, a, a green and leafy branch will begin to wither and die within hours, within hours of being severed from the bush. Often, even by the time a few hours later that I'm taking those cut branches and loading them into the back of my minivan to take them to the dump, I can see signs of withering starting to happen. And 24 hours later, any branches that I have cut off that that somehow escaped my cleanup efforts are lying on the ground clearly dead, clearly browning, clearly withering. Uh, Jesus could not have given us a clearer picture and image than this. If we're to live resurrected lives that bear fruit and bring him glory, then we must ever and always be connected to Jesus Christ. Well, this can kind of be abstract. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Christ. What does this look like practically? How do we win the battle of the resurrection life? How do we abide in Christ and therefore be led by the Spirit of Christ? Well, I believe there's several elements that are crucial to abiding in Christ. And I would put them to you in a series of decisions of the will. Abiding in Christ is remembering. It's remembering who you are in Christ. That is, you're dearly loved. You're forgiven. You're righteous. You're accepted. You're made new. Abiding in Christ is resting. Resting in Christ's completed work on your behalf. Right At the cross... Your sin's penalty was paid. At the cross, your sin's power was destroyed. Abiding in Christ is resolving. Resolving to surrender to Christ's loving lordship in your life. We acknowledge that, that he's on the throne, not you, not us, and that all his ways are good. And abiding in Christ is Relying, relying on Christ's power to bear fruit for his glory. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And and these four acts of the will that that help us abide in Christ are primarily put in motion as we reflect, as we reflect continually on the word of Christ with the people of Christ. The Spirit takes the words of Scripture and the encouragement of fellow believers to continually point us back to who we are in Christ and who Christ is for us. As Christians, we ought to live sin conquering and God honoring lives. It's who we are in Christ. And yet, we must consider that we are born wretched sinners, woefully inadequate on our own, once enslaved to the desires of our flesh that were incited by the law of God. And these desires of our flesh at times still beckon to us 
and cry out to us. They can be attractive to us. It's only through the Spirit of Christ making us new and living in us that we can bring him any glory at all. Therefore, we must be in the habit of meditating on his word and spending time with his people if we're to experience the power of of his spirit in our lives. To walk by the spirit is to abide in Christ and the words of scripture and the fellowship of the saints are crucial in keeping us connected to him. We need his word. We need each other if we're going to rightly see and abide in Jesus. So friends, your battle with the flesh is a very real battle. But conquering the flesh is entirely possible through the work of the Spirit. And whether or not a person has the Spirit, and therefore has this resurrection life, is clearly seen through the works of their life. Which moves us to the next consideration in our text, the proof of the resurrection life. The proof of the resurrection life. So after describing this battle between the flesh and the spirit, uh, Paul then provides a list of vices and virtues that makes one's spiritual condition an obvious one. While good works are certainly not the basis or the grounds for our justification, they are certainly a byproduct and an outworking of our justification. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. So in most cases, right, outward actions, what comes out of us reflects inward heart realities. That is, a person's behavior indicates whether the flesh is ruling or the spirit is ruling, whether there's resurrection life or not. And verses 19 through 21 give us this very detailed, though not comprehensive or complete list of sins that result from being controlled by the flesh. Uh, We could break this list of sins maybe into four categories. Uh, Sexual sin, false worship, social sins that disrupt our relationships, and then just unrestrained immoral release. And the end of this section is really scary. Paul says, I warn you, I warn you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are hard words. These are scary words that that are meant to shake us and jolt us and capture our attention. And we have to be careful here. Uh, Paul is not saying that you cannot inherit eternal life if you've ever committed any of these sins. Uh, That would be plunging us like right back into salvation by works of the law. To be sure, every Christian struggles with the sins mentioned here to some degree or another, uh, most definitely prior to coming to Christ and even sometimes after beginning life in Christ. Paul gives us a very similar list of sins when speaking to the Christians in Corinth. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. I think some of the most beautiful, powerful words in Scripture is that phrase, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. Paul's writing to believers. He's acknowledging, he's recognizing that many of them used to be characterized by these sins. So to have committed any of these sins on Paul's list uh, does not prohibit one from inheriting the kingdom of God. And praise the Lord that it does not. Uh, The key phrase here in the text is those who do such things, uh, which is better translated as those who practice such things. Right, the, the purpose of practice is to get better at something. The basketball player goes into the gym and for hours and hours practices his jump shots to increase his shooting percentage that, that he'll be able to score more points for his team. Now, the pianist uh, practices for hours and hours every day uh, to enhance the precision with which she strikes the keys with the goal of creating beautiful Beautiful music. You see, uh, we practice something with the intent of getting better at that something, whatever it is. And someone who makes a practice of engaging in sinful things is literally purposing to get better and better at sin. And is this not what happens in the life of an individual who's given over to the desires of the flesh? Uh, they grow more and more sophisticated in their engagement with their sin. And then they just plunge deeper and deeper into their expressions of their sin. And many of us, many of us experienced this destructive progression in our lives prior to life in Christ. Those who practice such things implies a life of habitual sin, Uh, where the desires of the flesh are holding sway as the normative experience of one's life. And if the flesh is constantly winning, then that individual must grapple with a very key question. Do I possess spirit? Our only hope in this battle against sin is is to be made new in Christ and to be empowered by his spirit. It's our only hope. If the spirit is present, the Bible says that sin will be gradually put to death. It's what the spirit does. It is the resurrection life. Therefore, Paul is, is simply stating that a life of habitual and frequent sin could be an indicator that that person is still dead in their sins outside of the forgiveness and righteousness found in Christ, an enemy of God, an object of his holy wrath. In short, this person has not been raised with Christ to new life in Christ and does not possess the spirit within And as we read these words, I think it's important to stop 
And, and for all of us to ask ourselves the natural question raised by this text. Are any of these works the habitual practice of your life? Are any of these works, these dead works, these works of the flesh, the habitual practice of my life? No, I'm not asking whether or not you are engaged in battling the works of the flesh. Right? To do battle with sin in your life is, is actually the mark of a Christian. And we all stumble and fail in sin when we take our eyes off Christ. We are not perfect this side of glory. No, I'm asking if the desires of your sinful flesh are the dominating passion of your life. Are you dominated by your sin? Is your life consumed with a specific work of the flesh? If this is you, regardless of how much or how little exposure uh, you think you have to the things of God, it's likely that you need to look for the first time to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. And I rejoice if God's doing that work in you today. A work that he did in my adult life a number of years ago. This question, whether or not the works of the flesh were the habitual practice of my life, it's really personal to me. It's, it's what led to my repentance and salvation as an adult. When I had lived my entire life in the church under the teaching of God's word, the spirit allowed me to see that the desires of my flesh were the dominating reality in my life. I didn't have the resurrection life in me. By the work of spirit, I cried out to Jesus for mercy. And I praise God for his mercy to me, his grace to me, the grace that has forgiven me, the grace that is transforming me, the grace that has given me resurrection life in Christ. Well, Paul then moves on to considering the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The fruit, we could say, of the resurrected life. Uh, This list is is, is common to us. Uh, As kids, we sing lots lots of songs about the fruit of the Spirit. But what might not be common to us about this list is that the word for fruit here uh, is, is singular. It's, it's singular, not plural. So, so while the works of the flesh are given to us in plural form, indicating that there's many possible manifestations of a life being lived under the control of the flesh, the Spirit's work in the resurrected life is, is referred to as one work. It's one fruit. In other words, Uh, The nine traits that are listed for us in our text, the fruit of the Spirit, they don't exist in isolation. Uh, They're all interrelated, and they all should be evidenced in the believer's life. Uh, It's not that uh, this believer over here, like Greg Fox has love. Uh, And then, you know, this believer over here, Dan Harmison has self-control. 
These are not spiritual gifts where the Spirit uh, gives different believers different gifts in different degrees. No. The fruit of a life walking in the Spirit will exist. All of these will exhibit all of these attributes. Yes, we will exhibit them in varying measures. We may excel in some of them. We may struggle in others. But they come as as a singular set, not as these separate or, or individual pieces. And I love here that the fruit of the Spirit are given to us primarily as attitudes. They're, they're attitudes which fly in the face of this thought that we can accomplish them in our own strength. Many of us love lists. I love lists. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. But the fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist to be accomplished. Note the list is not read your Bible for 30 minutes a day. Attend church 95% of the time. Give away 10% of your income or anything that we can tangibly do or measure on our own. As one scholar noted, law may prescribe certain forms of conduct and prohibit others, but love, joy, peace, and the rest cannot be legally enforced. We cannot summon up the strength to produce these things from within ourselves. The fruit of the Spirit is not the product of of human effort, not the product of willpower. It's not the product of our own strength. Rather, these attitudes, this fruit of the Spirit, they're supernatural, stemming from the life-changing work of the Spirit in our hearts. They come from a life that has been brought from death to life through union with Christ. And as we briefly, really briefly, ever so briefly, look at these fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the resurrected life, my goal is not to do what preachers often do with these and give you specific ways that you can work hard at improving each trait in your life. The Spirit of God will do that in you as you abide in Christ. No, my goal, as we reflect on the fruit of the Spirit, is for you to see how Jesus Christ, the perfect man, who you are united to by faith, exhibits these traits in his life. That we would know him more and be transformed into his image. So so consider with me how these nine attitudes are on full display in the life of Christ. Love, Christ, in the depth of his love for us, sacrificially gave up his life for unlovable and God-hating sinners. Joy, that Christ has eternally experienced abounding happiness in his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He's fully satisfied in himself and yet desires to bring his people into the joy of the triune God. Peace. Christ epitomizes this soul rest that is content in the Father's providence. He expressed this attitude just before his arrest in the garden where he said, Father, if you're willing, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Patience. Christ bore up under mistreatment and difficult circumstances. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Kindness. Christ's heart was moved by compassion for the harassed and the helpless. And he acted in kindness by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Goodness. Christ ever acted in complete moral purity and integrity. He was in every respect tempted as we are and yet without sin. Faithfulness. Christ was faithful for his entire life, achieving perfect righteousness for us and enduring unto death on the cross for our forgiveness. Gentleness. Christ is gentle and lowly in heart. He stoops down to meet sinners that we might find rest for our souls. And self-control. Christ restrained his divine power for the purpose of bringing the Father glory. And as we consider the fruit of the Spirit in the life of Christ, my mind shoots right back to Galatians 2.20, which I'll recite again. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, our only path to producing this desired fruit of the Spirit in our lives is to look to Jesus, to draw nearer to Jesus, that his life would be unleashed in ours. And as we daily abide in Christ, he will unite our desires to his desires. And it's solely because of belonging to Christ that we can be confident in this promised victory of the resurrection life, which Paul reminds us of in the final three verses of our text, the victory, the victory of the resurrection life. Well, verse 24 is a striking reminder that our victory over sin in the flesh has already been accomplished at the cross. Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as we've said, while we cannot muster within ourselves the strength to defeat the sin within, if we're in Christ through faith, the passions and desires of our flesh were already killed as Christ suffered, bled, and died on Calvary. The cross is our assurance. It is our confidence of final victory. And just as Jesus' indestructible life rose from the grave, we who trust in him have been resurrected to new life now. We possess the promised spirit within, even as we wait, eagerly wait for the return of Christ, where we would be perfected and glorified. Verse 25 then reminds us that since we are alive because of the work of Christ, applied to our hearts by the spirit, we must daily live out this victorious work of Christ by keeping in step with the spirit. Now, this is the same language Paul used back in verse 16 when he said, walk by the Spirit. So whether we say, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, 
uh, the imagery is the same. And as I said earlier, living in the Spirit is one and the same as abiding in Christ, remaining in close relationship with him. As I put forward a few minutes ago, I would sum up this resurrection reality of living in the Spirit as abiding in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Rest in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. Resolve to surrender to his lordship and rely on his power to bear fruit for his glory. And all of these choices of the will get put into action as we reflect continually on the word of Christ with the people of Christ. We need the scriptures. We need the body if we are to abide in our Savior. Now, if verses 24 and 25 give us a reminder of what this certain and victorious Christian life looks like, the resurrection life, verse 26 then wraps up this section, wraps up chapter 5, by giving us a reminder of what it looks like to not walk in step with the Spirit. Selfishness, self-love, which leaves damage and destruction in our personal relationships. It's interesting, where we stand in relationship to Christ is often observed in how we treat one another. A life in step with the Spirit is marked by sacrificial love, peacemaking, patience, kind words, gentle actions. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit has its most direct application in how we treat the people. And contrary to these demonstrations of the fruit of the Spirit, a life under the control of the flesh is marked by envy, gossip, slander, words that that bite and devour. Paul talked about this in the few verses right before verse 16. So, We must always, ever and always, be taking stock of our personal relationships, how we relate to our spouses, our children, our parents, our siblings, our coworkers, our roommates, our neighbors, our fellow church members. It's in these relationships that we either see or don't see the fruit of the Spirit in action. The resurrection life is a life that treats others as Christ treated others, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Spirit empowers us to fulfill the whole law by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And as we wrap up, our consideration this morning of the resurrection life. I cannot help but but think of three groups of people, and I'm going to speak to three separate groups of people in closing today. First, some of you do not have the resurrection life in you. Your operating system is the desires of your flesh. You're outside the kingdom of God. 
The Bible says you're dead in your sins, you're an enemy of God, and you have no hope of changing this situation on your own. But there is hope. There's hope for you in what God did for you in Christ. In Jesus' life, death and resurrection, can your life be redeemed from destruction Can you be brought into the resurrection life? If this is you, if this is you, you know you don't have the resurrection life, but the spirit is working in you this morning. Please don't leave this auditorium without talking to me, without talking to a fellow, they're not a fellow Christian right now, a Christian around you and asking them to share with you the hope of Jesus Christ. It is your only hope today. Secondly, some of you are confident that you have the resurrection life, but you're still struggling greatly with the desires of the old man, uh, this decaying corpse that you're still dragging around through life with you. And the desires of your flesh seem to be winning out far more often than you would like. This frustrates you. You hate your sin Sometimes you kill it, and then it rears its ugly head, and you choose it again. You don't want things to be this way. You know things shouldn't be this way. And yet it's where you're at this morning, locked in a vicious struggle with a particular sinful habit or desire. If this is you, brother, sister, be encouraged. The fact that you hate your sin is a sign of resurrection life in you. And Paul experienced the same struggle. Romans 7, he said, I know nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, struggling with sin, don't give up. Don't despair. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Stop talking to yourself about your failure. Start talking to yourself about your Savior. Cry out to your faithful brother, Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way as you are, but did not succumb to sin. Draw near to him for mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Get into his word. Let it richly dwell in you. And reach out. Reach out in humble honesty to a mature believer in this body to help you in your battle with sin. And finally, maybe you are living in the joyful reality of the resurrection life. Uh, By God's grace, you're abiding in Christ. The fruit of the spirit is on full display in your life. Praise God for this. Rejoice in his goodness. Rejoice in his kindness towards you. Celebrate your relationship with Jesus, who is your great treasure, who is your true reward. And keep pursuing him with unwavering commitment. Keep putting yourself under the teaching of his word. Keep gathering with his people. Keep remembering who you are in Christ. Keep resting in his work on your behalf. Keep resolving to surrender to him 
and keep relying on his power to bear fruit for his glory. And, really important, look to share the hope of the resurrection life with those who don't have it or those who are struggling to live it out. Always humbly acknowledging, oh Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for resurrection life. Thank you for your spirit in us that fuels us, that motivates us, that empowers us to bring you glory. And as we leave here today, I pray that all of us who know you would have this mindset. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To your name be all the praise for your grace of forgiving us and transforming us through the work of your Spirit. In his name we pray.